Well, good morning. Whoa, welcome. Glad that you're here this morning. Um, some of you know my story, my background. I was raised in Illinois, and then I moved to Texas after I finished my engineering degree to practice civil engineering. Um, eventually went to graduate school and seminary there and moved to North Carolina to start, uh, help start this new work called Northwake Church some 26 or however many years ago I was part of that. Um, but there was a lady who did some research um, on our family, and I think, yeah, my, uh, my grandfather on my father's side was William Joseph Trotter, and they put together this kind of roots research uh, that they did, and little did I know, but about 250 years ago, um, they tracked my grandmother, this is uh, Mary Sophronia, if you're looking for a good name for your daughter, Sophronia Garrison, um, they, they kind of traced her back. Um, and you get back to about 250 years ago, and sure enough, Easter Roberts, one of my kin, is from Surrey County, North Carolina. Who knew, right? It's over by, over by uh, Mount Airy, is in Surrey County. And so I've got roots here. I'm going, going back to my roots. And um, beyond that, you could, you could trace them back to uh, places in Europe like Prussia, which is a state in Germany, was a state in Germany, um, and... Um, France, probably. But, um, you know, churches have roots, too. I don't know if you know that. Northwake was planted in um, 1989 by Providence Baptist Church in Raleigh. They started this work. Um, Providence was started by Pastor David Horner and a number of other folk, a handful of other folk, in 1978. And if you went back and back and back, not not even 250 years of our church's roots, if you went back 500 years, what you would find would be an absolute mess in our family tree. Uh, you could call it a family feud if you wanted to. Uh, about 500 years ago in our family tree, this is what a, a, our family tree looks like, kind of, sort of, as Christians. So, Initially, after Jesus, the church was founded, and you've got one holy Catholic apostolic church, right? But then in, in 1054, something happened called the Great Schism, and the church was divided, kind of went two directions. From that point on, there was the Eastern Orthodox branch, and this was some earlier offshoots down here, and the Roman Catholic branch, which went this way. But then 500 years ago, this month, on Reformation Day... October 31st, 500 years ago, that was, that was uh, October 31st of 1517, there was another great upheaval that happened. Now that first great schism, when you read about it, the one that happened around 1000 AD, uh, was really rooted a lot in uh, matters of power and politics. There were some doctrinal issues involved, like whether or not to eat leavened or unleavened bread during communion. So it wasn't primarily a doctrinal issue. It was primarily about matters of power and governance, it seems, as, as we read back. But in this second division, this second offshoot, this great one that happens right here where you go Roman Catholicism or into Protestantism, all of this that happened around 500 years ago, um, the matters were much, much more uh, significant. The Roman church 
at that time, by all accounts, had become corrupt. And a monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses or statements to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, as a way of starting a theological dialogue about his concerns about the moral corruption and theological um, misplacement of the, of the church at that time. And I suppose you could say, as a result of that, all heaven broke loose. Okay? Some really wonderful um, things came out of that. What we call it the Protestant Reformation. And it ultimately led to the founding of all Protestant churches on our family tree. So if you belong to one of those kinds of churches, okay, any one of those churches, this is your roots. Okay? As, Baptist, as a Baptist church, this is our roots. This is our family tree. And the issues in this schism between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism that happened in the 1500s um, are much, much more significant. I suppose you could say one of the most important questions and some of the most important issues in the world were at stake um, when the church uh, divided at this point in time. And to help you think about it, I'd like to tell you a modern Reformation story. Some of you have heard it before. You've never heard it in this context. It's called uh, Johnny Lingo and his eight-cow wife. One of the great Reformation stories of our day, um, as some of you know. So this is the way the story goes. It's told by Patricia. It's a short story by Patricia McGurr. Get Johnny Lingo to help you find what you want and then let him do the bargaining advised Schenken as I sat on the veranda of his guest house and wondered whether to visit Nurbandi. He'll earn his commission four times over. Johnny knows values and how to make a deal. Johnny Lingo, the chubby boy on the veranda steps, hooted the name and then hugged his knees and rocked with shrill laughter. Be quiet, said his father, and the laughter grew silent. Johnny Lingo's the sharpest trader in this part of the Pacific. The simple statement made the boy choke and almost roll off the steps in laughter. Smiles broadened on the faces of the villagers standing nearby. What goes on? I demanded. Everybody around here tells me to get in touch with Johnny Lingo and then breaks up laughing. Is it some kind of trick? A wild goose chase? Like sending someone for a left-handed wrench? Is there no such person or is he the village idiot or what? Let me in on the joke. Not idiot, said Schenken. Only one thing. Five months ago, at festival time, Johnny came to Kiniwata and found himself a wife and paid her father eight cows. He spoke the last words with great solemnity, and I knew enough about island customs to be thoroughly impressed. Two or three cows would buy a fair to middling wife. Four or five, a highly satisfactory one. Eight cows, I said. She must have been a beauty that takes your breath away. That's why they laugh, my guest said. It would be a kindness to call her plain. But she attracted Johnny, I asked. And this is the story that Schenken told me. He said, 
Sarita's father was hoping to simply get one cow for his homely daughter. Then Johnny came into the tent and without waiting for a word from any of them went straight up to Sam Karu, grasped his hand and said, Father of Sarita, I offer eight cows for your daughter. And he delivered the cows. This story intrigued me, so I decided to investigate. The next day I reached the island where Johnny lived and I told him that his people had told me about him. And he said, oh, they speak much of me on that island. What did they say? They say, I said, you are a sharp trader. They also say the marriage settlement that you made for your wife was eight cows. I paused and then went on, coming as close to a direct question as I could. They wonder why. They say that. And his eyes lighted with pleasure. He seemed not to have noticed the question. Everyone in Kinawata knows about the eight cows. And I nodded. And in Narabundi, everyone knows it too. And his chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. He said, so that's the answer, I thought. All this mystery and wonder and the explanations only vanity. It's not enough for his ego to be known as the smartest, the strongest, the quickest. He had to make himself famous for his way of buying a wife. I was tempted to deflate him by reporting that in Kiniwata he was laughed at for a fool. But as we spoke, a woman entered the adjoining room and placed a bowl of blossoms on the dining table. She stood still a moment to smile with sweet gravity at the young man beside me, and then she went out swiftly again. She was the most beautiful woman that I have ever seen. And as she turned to leave, she moved with grace that made her look like a queen. When she was out of sight, I turned back to Johnny Lingo and found him looking at me with eyes that reflected the pride of the girls. You admire her, he murmured. She's, she's glorious. Who is she? I couldn't help but think, if she was a servant, how difficult it must be for homely Sarita, having to be daily in the presence of such a beauty. And what a temptation for Mr. Lingo. She is my wife. I stared at him blankly. Was this some custom I'd not heard about? Do they practice polygamy here? He, for his eight cows, had bought both Sarita and this other? Before I could form a question, he spoke again. This is the only one, Sarita. His way of saying the words gave them a special significance. Perhaps you wish to say she does not look the way she looked in Kiniwata. She doesn't. And the impact of the girl's appearance made me forget tact. I heard she was homely. They all made fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. You think he cheated me? You think eight cows were too many? And a slow smile slid over his lips as I, looked, as I shook my head. She can see her father and friends again and they can see her. Do you think anyone will make fun of us then? Much has happened to change her. Much in particular happened the day she went away. You mean she married you? That, yes, but most of all, I mean the arrangements for the marriage. The arrangements? Do you ever think, he asked reflectively, what it does to a woman when she knows that the price her husband paid is the lowest price for which she can be bought? And then later, when all the women talk, as women do, they boast of what their husbands paid for them, and one says four cows, another maybe six, how does she feel, the woman who was sold for one or two? This could not happen to my Sarita. In Kiniwata, Johnny Lingo said, 
Sarita believed she was worth nothing. And now she knows that she is worth more than any woman on the island. I said, then you wanted, he said, I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman. But, he finished softly, I wanted an eight-cow wife. So, what does that have to do with the Reformation? Okay. It has everything to do with the Reformation. Um, let, me, let me quote that little monk, Martin Luther, again, through the voice of Professor Michael Reeves who's written delightfully on the Reformation. He says, 500 years ago, a discovery was made that would change the world, unleashing happiness wherever it went, and still today it is transforming lives and cultures. Here it is. The secret of the Reformation, he says, was this. Failing broken people are not loved because they are attractive, said Martin Luther. They are attractive because they are loved. See, this is the gospel that was lost by the corrupted church. Okay. This is the good news. Listen to it from the lips of the Apostle Paul. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were unattractive. God died for us. And John writes that that's to be transformative. He says, we love because he first loved us. And so this first love of God for us is to transform us from unattractive, self-loving orbit people into attractive, others-loving orbit people because he has loved us first. So the secret of the Reformation that was recovered by Martin Luther and so many others was that failing broken people are not loved because they are attractive. They are attractive because they are loved. See, leading up to this time of the Reformation, um, the, this happy message of joyful salvation had been lost as a result of moral corruption in the church. And... Um, as expected, moral corruption led to doctrinal distortion. And the stakes at this fork in our family tree were extremely high at that point in time. See, the very good news of the love of God for us, the undeserving like us in Christ, was at stake. And Martin Luther was among the first of many reformers who helped us recover the beauty of the gospel. Um, if you read about the Reformation, you'll read about people like William Tyndale, um, Ulrich Zwingli. These are great names for your children. Jot them down. <laughs> Philip Melanchthon, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer. 
You notice the pictures. These are not sour pusses. It just hasn't been, it wasn't popular to smile until last century for your pictures, okay? These were happy men. Um, and they did this gospel recovery work at great cost. Tyndale was strangled and then burned. English reformers Ridley and Latimer and Cranmer were all burned alive for their faith, as were far too many others. Luther is reported to have said, if I had a thousand heads, I would rather have them all lopped off than abandon my gospel. See, these men are our spiritual ancestors. This is our family tree. The faith we hold dear comes to us through them and, and many, many others. Tim Chester says, if you are Anglican, Baptist, Brethren, Congregational, Independent, Lutheran, Mennonite, Methodist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, or Reformed, then these men are your roots. Our faith rests on their shoulders and, and on, on five key truths that they recovered. Um, as Carson alluded to, they are sometimes called the five solas. Um, they were lovers of Latin. Religious jargon was done in Latin. And you still sound a little more spiritual if you talk about it in Latin. So... You get to learn a little Latin today. Sola just means alone or only or solely. Um, and it's these five solas, these four alones or five onlys, have become a kind of shorthand summary of the essence of the Reformation and the beautiful truths of Scripture that were recovered um, through the work of these, these men. And so today we're going to look at these five very briefly um, for the protection of our faith and the fullness of our joy in the God who loves us so. So um, I, don't, I don't know if you can follow. There's a couple, a couple scriptures. This is a lot of history uh, rooted in a couple of key scriptures. Um, I'll post those up here so you don't have to chase me through the Bible. Um, but let's pray together as we open up the scriptures to cherish these five truths together. Bow with me, please. Lord, have mercy on us now. Um, it's easy for us, through our own corruption and our own distortion, to lose the beauty of the gospel um, that is ours, the good news of Jesus that comes to us through him. So, Restore it afresh with clarity in our minds and kindle it an affection for it in our hearts once again, just as we look at it together as your people uh, today. So have mercy on us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Um, these, the, there's no particular order to these five. Uh, they're cited in many orders. We'll start with something called sola scriptura, which is just what it sounds like, only the scriptures, right? And the question that this answers is, what or whom must I supremely obey? What or whom is my supreme authority? 
um, scripture alone or scripture and tradition, especially tradition in, in Luther's day and in the, during the time of the Reformation, tradition that was rooted in the decrees of the Pope. Those traditions were, were, were valued as uh, on an almost equal footing with Scripture. Um, now this came to a head during the Reformation, this question of who shall I supremely obey, as they were emerging from a season when there were two, and at one point even three, popes simultaneously. Okay? Um, there, were, there was not one pope you could obey, there were two. And you had to choose. Um, and each one of the popes promptly excommunicated the other, making things even more complicated for people to, to sort this out. Whose decrees do you follow? Whom do you obey? And you can add to that horrific accounts of, of papal corruption back in the days. Michael Reeves writes, he says, certainly things got a bit grubby before the Reformation. Rome, which had become the Las Vegas of its day, had just reached an all-time low under the papacy of Pope Alexander VI from 1492 to 1503. Having bought the necessary votes to get himself elected as pope, he proceeded to have numerous children by his mistresses. He was rumored to have had another child with his party-throwing, poison-ring-wearing daughter, Lucretia. Don't name your daughter that and is best remembered for his habit of throwing orgies in the Vatican and poisoning his cardinals. Um, so would we obey and submit to a man like that? See, sola scriptura means that the Bible alone is our highest authority above the teaching of any man. That's why you open your Bibles when I preach and you, and you examine what I say against the Scriptures. And this sola scriptura is based in part on how the Bible presents itself. In 2 Timothy, listen to the language that Paul uses to describe the Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. These are words breathed by God so as to give us all we need to make us complete. And the allegiance that's required of us to this word, Psalm 119, the entire psalm, the longest psalm in the Old Testament, is every verse about the words of God. And, and Psalm 119, 119 verse 112 says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. A truly amazing allegiant, allegiance is to be given to these words of God because they are words of God. Councils and creeds matter to us as Protestants. They do. We learn from them. They express our faith. But they are helpful only in the sense that they help us to obey and understand our ultimate authority, Scripture. Okay. We dare not staple the Westminster Confession or the Athanasian Creed to the back of our Bibles and treat it as the words of God. Okay. They are not. 
They are helpful to us. But our, our ultimate authority is Scripture. And if there's a man who exemplifies this, it was a brilliant young linguist named William Tyndale. Um, one article describes his discovery of the good news of God's unmerited love this way. He says, it's good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Creswellian joy. Wanting others to read what he had read and so share his joy, the article goes on, Tyndall set about his life's work of translating the Bible from its original Greek and Hebrew to English. No English speaker had ever held the scriptures in their hands before the life work of, of William Tyndall and his associates. He sailed to Germany where it was safer to work and there within a few short years Tyndall managed to translate most of the Bible it was accurate and easy to read. It turned out to be a gem of a translation. However, it was illegal in England to own or even read such a translation. So it was illegal to read the Bible in your own language in, in the nation of England. The penalty was death. Some 16,000 copies of his Bible, thanks to Gutenberg and his printing press that had been invented earlier, were smuggled into England before Tyndall was caught in 1535. The following October, he was brutally strangled and burned near Brussels and uttering his immortal last words, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. In just two years after Tyndall had died uttering that prayer, it was decreed by the king of England that an English Bible be placed in every church in England. Okay. Until then, the only people who had access to the word of God were priests and teachers because it was in Latin. And no, none of the common people could even read it. Tyndale and his followers' works brought the truth of the gospel unhindered to the people of England, and he brought us our English Bible that we hold in our hands, that we read on our phones this morning, at the cost of his life. And my fear is that we take the privilege of holding the very word of God in our hands and in our language far too lightly. Would your Bible reading practices refute that concern? Sola Scriptura. Only Scripture. It is our ultimate authority. Okay. As Protestant believers. Secondly, Sola Gratia. Only grace. And it answers the question, what must I earn um, to gain my salvation, to gain relationship with God? Now, the medieval church life was marked by um, the doctrines of purgatory and the practice of indulgences. Um, 
These are not familiar concepts to many of us today. Um, but listen to this description of how they functioned 500 years ago. Um, they sprang from the teaching that few would die righteous enough to merit salvation fully upon death. So unless Christians died unrepentant of a mortal sin, such as murder, in which case they would go to hell, they had the chance after death to have all their sins slowly purged from them in purgatory. Then they could enter heaven fully cleansed. Few relished the prospect of thousands or even millions of years of chastisement after death, and so they sought to fast-track the route through purgatory, both for themselves and for those they loved. An entire industry evolved around purgatory for exactly this reason. The wealthy founded um, chantries, which were special chapels with priests dedicated to saying prayers and masses for the soul of their sponsor or his fortunate beneficiaries. The less wealthy would club together in fraternities to pay for the same privilege. And most people then could expect a stint in purgatory after death. The Pope, however, could give a gift of merit called an indulgence to any soul he deemed worthy, fast-tracking that soul's path through purgatory or even leapfrogging purgatory altogether with a full or a plenary indulgence. And by Luther's day, a donation of money to the church was often deemed penitential enough to merit such an indulgence. Thus it became increasingly clear in, people's, clear in people's minds, a bit of cash could secure spiritual bliss. And to a monk like Brother Martin, such easy religious trading made a mockery of true repentance. And so, sola gratia means we are saved, fully saved and redeemed by the grace of God alone. By Christ's work alone, not ours. By his righteousness, not ours. Not our own merit, not our own works. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes about this. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. By grace, you have been saved. And Luther wrote about this in a, in a delightful work, a story embedded in a work called The Freedom of a Christian. And he tells this story to explain grace. He says, the good news of Jesus, it was like a story of a wealthy king who marries a debt-ridden prostitute. The girl could never make herself a queen, but when the king comes along full of love for her, on their wedding day, he makes his marriage vow to her. With, with that, she is his, and the prostitute becomes a queen. He takes and bears all her debts, and she now shares his boundless wealth and royal status. It is not that she earned it. She didn't become a queen by behaving royally. Indeed, she does not know how to behave royally. But when the king made his marriage promise, he changed her status. 
For all her backstreet ways, the prostitute is now a queen. Just so found Luther. The greatest failure who accepts Jesus Christ gets to share his righteousness and status. What happens is a happy status swap. Luther called it the joyful exchange. I think Exchange Church that we planted in Roseville gets their name from this, though I don't think they know that. But this is where they get their name. I asked Ed, this is where you get your name? And he says, if it sounds smart, yes. So yes, this is where Exchange Church gets their name. What happens is a happy status swap. Luther called it the joyful exchange. When Jesus died on the cross, he took and there dealt with all our guilt and failure. And out of sheer love, he now shares with those who trust him all his righteousness and life. All his righteousness and life becomes ours. Jesus loves broken people. And through his death on the cross for them, he makes them attractive and beautiful in God's sight. So what does this sola gratia, only grace, mean for us? It means no works-based salvation. Okay. We are welcomed into God's family based on no merit of our own. All is of grace. Now, um, the Roman Catholic Church continues the practice of, of indulgences to this day. Um, back in 2013, The Guardian, a British paper, reports that indulgences these days are granted to those who carry out certain tasks. You can make a pious pilgrimage uh, to somewhere like Rome, for instance. Um, but Something unique happened then. Um, attendance at events such as the Catholic World Youth Day, that was in Rio de Janeiro, a week-long event, can also win an indulgence. That pilgrimage also counted. But what was really unique about it, they were mindful of the faithful who could not afford to fly to Brazil. So the Vatican's sacred apostolic penitentiary, which is a court which handles the forgiveness of sins, has also extended the privilege of those who follow the rites and pious exercises of the event on television, radio, and through social media. That includes following Twitter, said a source of the penitentiary, referring to Pope Francis' Twitter account, which had gathered seven million followers. And then he said, but you must be following the events live. It's not as if you can get an indulgence by chatting on the internet. Okay. <laughs> now, to be fair, the Roman Catholic Church is explicit that forgiveness comes through Christ alone. What this is, what indulgences do is they work off temporal punishment that holds you in purgatory until uh, you arrive in heaven, having paid that temporal punishment for your sins, the consequence for your sin. Um, but you can see how confusing this is. And it's based on what? Not on scripture, but on the words of a man on the decree of a man, or some penitentiary. Um, and that takes us back where? Sola Scriptura, right? We can't earn God's favor, not by pious pilgrimages, not by, not by giving to the poor. All is of grace. It's unmerited favor. We don't get what we deserve. 
and we get what we don't deserve. It's grace. Sola gratia. Thanks be to God that it's grace. Third sola, closely related. Sola fide. Only faith. Your friends at work are going to be so impressed with the Latin that you're learning at church today. They really are. Sola fide. And it answers the question, what must I do to be saved? Only faith. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. See, even our faith is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 is beautiful. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace and faith, they are gifts. Jesus, as revealed in the promises in the word of God, is the object of that faith. Um, Martin Luther, uh, one writer says, became a monk um, and that gave him a golden opportunity. He could make himself more attractive to God and so hopefully earn his love. Yet the more he did, the more troubled Martin became. Wasn't enough. Were his motives right? Luther found himself sinking into ever deeper introspection and Luther went for it. The writer says, every few hours he would leave his tiny, tiny monastery cell and make his way to a service in the chapel, starting with matins in the middle of the night, and then another at six in the morning, and another at nine, another at twelve. And he began to sense that his moral dirtiness and lack of attractiveness to God went deeper than his behavior. Um, he is renowned for um, confessing his sins for up to six hours a day and wearing his confessors out with his confessions, Luther would. He says, that, but I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the right, righteous person lives. It is a gift of God. God, he saw, is not asking us to earn his love and acceptance in any way. God's righteousness is something he shares with us as a gift. Acceptance before God, forgiveness and peace with him is received by a simple faith and trust. And this, comes, this came to Luther through Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so here in the Bible, Luther found truly good news. A kind and generous God who does not ask people to make themselves attractive before he loves them, but who loves them first. Okay. And in this we place our faith and trust. The righteous life of Christ by faith is applied to me and is enough for me to draw near to God. Okay. Sola Fide, only faith. There's a fourth one. I'll, I'll touch on it uh, briefly. Solus Christus, right? Only Christ. See, you knew Latin and you didn't even know it. 
before you came in here. Only Christ. And this is the idea of in what or in whom must I trust? Salvation is in Christ alone. There is no other mediator between God and man. And unfortunately, those who are in, in segments of the Christian faith have lost this precious truth. Uh, there was an interview with a, um, a Roman Catholic nun, Sister Anne, who worked in Kathmandu, Nepal, with Mother, as representative of Mother Teresa's organization, the Missionaries of Charity. And in this interview, they asked her, do you believe that if the Hindus die believing in Shiva or in Ram, their Hindu gods, they will go to heaven? And Anne says, yes, that is their faith. My own faith will lead me to God. So if they have believed in their God very strongly, if they have faith, surely they will be saved. And this belief of solus Christus says, no, no, salvation is in Christ only. That's why we send people around the globe, because there's no other hope. First Timothy says, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Solus Christus, only Christ. Only Christ. And the last one is just kind of a, it's been said that if the first four are the bricks of, of the Reformation, this is the mortar that holds them all together. And it is soli deo gloria. Only God gets the glory. Okay. Uh, only God gets the glory. God alone gets all the glory for our salvation. If grace is unmerited favor, and if faith is a gift, not a result of works, God gets the glory all of it. We are right to give him glory for all of our lives. Only God gets the glory. Peter said it beautifully. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And that, that's the five solas, kind of the cliff note summary of the core beliefs of the Reformation that is our spiritual heritage. And I should end where we began. Martin Luther, in the Heidelberg Disputation of 1518. So it's just a year after, probably about six months after, he nailed those theses to the Wittenberg door. He writes this. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. The love of God, which lives in man, loves sinners, evil persons, fools, and weaklings in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. This is the gospel, the good news 
that we, ha- we don't have to merit God's love for us. Okay. Now, um, some of the intriguing quotes come from this, this book that I would like to recommend to you all. If you'd like to say you read a book on the Reformation, you should read this book because um, it's 44 pages long with, about, with lots of full-paid pictures and inexplicable blank pages. So it might be 20 pages long. <laughs> 20 pages long. And it's free. So you, you're not going to get any better than this. And you can get it today at this website. It's by Michael Reeves. If, there's the link. If you go to desiringgod.org and search for freedom movement, you'll read one of the most delight. You'll read some of the quotes I shared with you today, some of the most delightful descriptions of how um, the Reformation began and, and took place. Um, and it would be a great halftime read. You could probably read it in halftime today. So um, as you spend your Lord's Day uh, relaxing, this would be fantastic. We'll post it on our blog this week too, for those of you who get that. Um, I hope you'll find it there. But as George said earlier, you need to know this, this message is an invitation to the love of God. Not based on you being able to deserve it, but on the fact that um, Scripture tells us um, that God so loved you, so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in Christ alone, will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so... The love of God is available through you, to you through that promise of Scripture alone. By grace in the work of Christ that comes through the work of Christ alone. By faith in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Okay. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Lord, forgive us how we want to take credit for things. Um, We'd like to think that we're good enough, that we're, we're good people, and so we'll probably be okay with you because we're better than somebody else. And Lord, that is, uh, that's simply not the case. Somebody else is not the standard. You are a holy, holy, holy God. And so, oh, how we need a Savior who will bear our sins away and who will credit us a righteousness not of our own that we could stand before you cloaked in, as it were. And so I pray for my friends who are before me today, especially for those who are sitting on the outside looking in, and this is not their faith, that you would grant them the gift of faith today, and that they would seize it and cling to it and cherish it all of their days. And Lord, for those of us who have and who do, help us, help us to love you back because you have loved us so when we were so unattractive. And thank you. Thank you for making us attractive in the righteousness of Christ, for changing us. Um, have mercy on us now, Lord, as we worship you. In Christ's great name, amen. Would you stand, please?